tells they use those scriptures, but all and the whole world does not refer refer to the whole world. It refers to the church. The Reformed view Calvinists believe Jesus only died for those whom the Father chose. John six thirty seven through forty. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that I have come down from heaven, all that the Father gives me, sorry, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. The Bible teaches God does not love all people with the same love. Amos 3, 2, you only have I loved of all the families of the earth. Romans 8, 29, those who God foreloved, he also foreordained. Because there is a limited election, there is limited atonement. God's electing love and Christ's atonement go hand in hand and have the same people in view. Unless one is a universalist and believes that everyone will ultimately be saved, a Christian must hold to some form of a limited atonement. The dispute is over who limits the atonement, God or man. Calvinist, reform thinkers, maintain that God limits the atonement by choosing those whom he will save. Only God placed on Christ the sins of those he had chosen for salvation. The Arminian position states that God does not limit the reparation of Christ, but instead it is humanity that limits the atonement by freely choosing to accept or reject the offer that God makes to them for salvation. To wrap it up, the best way I would look at to explain the difference is John 3:16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life The necessary condition that limits the atonement is found in whoever whosoever believes In Greek all the believing ones the atonement is limited to those who believe and only those who believe. Very good. So, so Owen's dilemma, again, we'll go over this real quickly uh, because it's worthwhile remembering uh, the dilemma that it creates. Um, Christ died, if I, Christ died for all the sins of all men and everyone saved, uh, universalism other than classic liberalism is rejected 
by virtually everyone. A liberalism would hold that uh, he did die for everyone and therefore everyone is saved. Uh, classic liberalism is uh, we need just to, we just need to educate people that they are saved. Uh, figure that one out. Uh, yeah, but but nonetheless, uh, he didn't die for all the sins of all men. But we know that because Scripture gives us examples. Uh, did he die for Judas, of whom he said, "Better that that man had never been born"? Okay. No, he didn't die for Judas. Uh, didn't you know? Uh, didn't die for the goats. We know there's goats. Didn't die for the goats. So, um, uh, so if you if you uh, slip to position number two, he died for some of the sins of all men. Well, then no one's saved uh, because there's st- still a liability. And therefore, Owen says he died for all of the sins of some men. Okay. All the sins of some men. Now. The classic Arminian response is, um, yes, uh, uh, we hold he died for all the sins of, uh, of everybody, but we have to have faith. And if we have faith, then he died, then, then our salvation is effective. So, I mean, it's a classic move in Arminianism is that they, they, they take it away from the divine and give it to man. So you have to have faith. So what's the problem with that, Owen says? Owen says, is lack of faith a sin? And the answer is yes. And therefore, um, he died for that sin too. So you are, you are shoved into that position. You, you catch what he's saying? Lack of faith is a sin. Did he die for that sin or not? Uh, yes, he did. And that's why if you think of some of our earlier presentations, uh, uh, we have faith because God gifts it to us in our regeneration. We are born again, uh, um, and the product of the new birth is faith. It's not the only product. You remember when we went back through the uh, five passages in, the, in uh, John's first epistle, uh, Memory serves me. Uh, the verb born, uh, 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 the verb to be birds is used like ten times, uh, but it's always a product of God, born of God. John one thirteen, born of God. John three, born from above. You must be born again, the product of the Holy Spirit. So it's a divine event, and the lack of faith is a sin. If he didn't die for that sin then no one's going to be saved. And hence, our position is he died for all of the sins of some men. That's a massive number. So, you know, we don't mean to say it's a puny number. It's a massive number. So think of Owen's dilemma. Um, um, try to work through that and work through the majesty of God's grace in the new birth. So... Um, so good, uh, good, good presentation. To me, the uh, the John six passage is just is just conclusive. Um, um, everyone that the Father gives me, I lose none. And of course, the Arminian is always going to respond. Uh, 
Well, yeah, but we have to have faith. Of course we have to have faith. No one is denying that. But in our understanding, faith is the product of the new birth. And that's why Owen's dilemma is very, very important. Uh, because uh, he died for, uh, for our lack of faith, which is a sin too. So, anyway, um, any, any questions on particular redemption? Yeah, Benara. Well, I mean, well, to, to a certain extent, it, it is sufficient for all. And that's why I think Palmer speaks to the fact that we can proclaim the gospel to all men because it is, it is sufficient, but it's not efficient for everyone. So that's how I would answer it. I don't know if that answers your question or not. We can, we can freely proclaim the gospel because of its sufficiency. Uh, but you know my, uh, uh, my sharing of the faith includes Christ died for sinners. I don't tell people that Christ died for them because I don't know who he died for. And I don't want to give them a false assurance. Um, so I just tell people uh, the, the factual reality is that he died, he died for the sins of sinner. And you're a sinner. Um, so uh, I don't have a problem uh, with, with, uh, uh, with sufficiency. Uh, because it is sufficient, but it's not efficient. It's only efficient for the elect. So you can see here, in fact, this goes back to your, your question uh, last week, uh, all these all these points are all uniquely tied together. Yeah. If you hold to the doctrine of unconditional election, you have to hold to a particular redemption, because he's not going to die for the non-elect. Um, if you if you hold that Christ died for everyone, then you end up with lots of logical issues. Like, if he died for everyone, why in John three does Jesus says of the Spirit that he moves like the wind? Because the wind doesn't blow all the time and everywhere; it blows where the Spirit wills. So, is there a disjunction between the unity of Father and Spirit? Well, of course not. So. Anyway, there's lots, but there's also explicit verses, um, you know, like the John 10, you don't believe because you're not of my sheep. Anyway, so this brings us to irresistible grace, Jose. Yeah. Irresistible grace means that God, irresistible grace means that God sends his Holy Spirit to work in the lives of his people so that they will definitely change, that the Holy Spirit will certainly cause everyone whom God has chosen from eternity and for whom Christ died to believe in him. Irresistible grace does not mean that God forces people to do what they don't want to do. Rather, he gives a person a new heart. The person that God saves now has a new nature and desires to obey him. And we see this in Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27 where it says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, 
and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So we see that God is the one that cleanses us. He's the one that gives us a new heart and gives us his spirit and causes us to walk in his statutes. God does not force us to do what we don't want to do. Rather, he gives us a new heart. And we also see this in John 3, 5 through 8, uh, where Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it is, where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. We see that we must be born of the Spirit, born again to see the kingdom of God, an action that can only be done by God. Now the one whom God has saved now has the Holy Spirit within them that causes him to hate his sin and love God and obey him. And in the chapter of the book, we see that the finding of uh, erroneous views of uh, Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism. Now Pelagianism states that man is not depraved at all, rather that man is born perfectly good, and can choose the good or the bad equally. So according to Pelagianism, there's not a need for the Holy Spirit to help man do good, since man can do good all on his own and is not bound to his sin nature. The grace of God can help, but is not necessary according to uh, this teaching. Now, semi-Pelagianism is a compromise between Pelagianism and Calvinism. It states that man is fallen and does need God's grace, but that man is not completely fallen Man is not dead in sin and can choose to cooperate or not with God's grace. So ultimately, semi-Pelagianism and Pelagianism teach that God does not make someone believe and that it's up to man to choose God. They believe in the grace of God, but not that the grace of God is irresistible or effectual in the life of a, of a person. Whereas Calvinism teaches that man is spiritually dead and can't believe other than the irresistible work of the Holy Spirit that regenerates and causes the person to believe in Christ. And we see this in Acts 16, 14, where it says, One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So we see that God is the one that opens the hearts of people. Also, Ephesians 2, 1 through 5 says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So we see that man is dead in his sins and trespasses, unable to choose God and has to be made alive spiritually by God, be born again to choose to follow Christ. God causes this irresistibly and effectually in a person. In this chapter, the book goes on to state that all the points of Calvinism depend upon each other. It highlights how the three points that go before irresistible grace support it. Total depravity, unconditional election, and limited atonement. How does irresistible grace depend on or uh, go together with limited atonement? Well, God's word teaches us that from eternity, God loves certain people 
and sent his son to die for them. Jesus died for the elect, and he bore their sins. In Acts 13, 48, it says, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. We see that certain ones are appointed to eternal life, that those that are appointed to eternal life believe. God, of course, is the one that does the appointing. Also in John 10, 25 through 30, it says, Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So that's why it's necessary for God to send the Holy Spirit to work in the lives of the elect, those that are appointed to eternal life, so that they accept the salvation that has already been worked out for them on the cross. And this is done in an irresistible way, since man in his natural state does not have the ability to choose God. Those that are not of Christ's sheep do not have the ability to believe. This is how limited atonement goes together with irresistible grace. Now let's read John 6, 37 through 40 and verse 44 separately. And it says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. The scripture supports unconditional election. All that the Father gives to Jesus comes to Jesus, and all that are given to him cannot be lost but have eternal life. God irresistibly causes the elect to come to Christ. And of course, you know, total depravity goes together with the other points of Calvinism since we have seen that no one is able to come to Jesus unless the Father draws them since man is dead in his sins and trespasses. So God's irresistible grace causes change in a person and accomplishes God's sovereign will. The Holy Spirit certainly and irresistibly causes everyone whom God has chosen from eternity and for whom Christ died to believe in him. I appreciate uh, particularly dealing with uh, semi-Pelagianism and uh, the Arminian positions. Uh, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about um, uh, theological failure of these two positions. Uh, if you think, if you think on on the really broad scale, uh, the grand scheme of our salvation, it's a scheme that's developed obviously in the Old Testament, uh, but it's expanded and enlightened on in the New Testament. Uh, for example, the doctrine of creation. We know that God's a creator. Uh, Genesis one one. He, he, he creates uh, the physical universe by his sovereign power. Uh, well, the New Testament takes that theology and applies it to the new creation in the New Testament. And creator is Christ. Uh, he's the agent of the new creation. Uh, he creates it by his death and resurrection. It's his resurrection power that, that becomes our enablement to believe in the new birth 
obviously applied by the Holy Spirit. So it's a theology. I mean, if you understand biblical theology, that what's in the Old Testament is in germ form, becomes expansive in the New. Uh, both creations go together in terms of the theological reality, the creation of the physical universe, as well as the creation of the church or the spiritual creation. Uh, uh, that is a fundamental reason, uh, by the way, that, that I think uh, the pagan academy is so adamant to teach our children about evolution. There's no, there's no, there's no creator. There's just events and they happen by random chance over kajillions of years. Okay? So, you know, if you believe in chance as a governor of your life, uh, well, I get that, but, uh, 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 but I reject that, um, uh, because to me it's illogical. Uh, things do not come into being out of nothing. It takes a creator. Our creator is God. He creates the physical universe, but he also creates the church. Okay. Uh, the other key reality that uh, uh, Jose brought to our attention is the text in Ezekiel. Okay, The prophet is uh, prophesying of a time of restoration in which God will make people new by his sovereign power. In other words, they failed over and over and over again. Uh, that's part of the genius that we're looking at in the book of Genesis, that we look at God's grace. Everyone's failing. <laughs> and so God eventually is going to provide someone who doesn't fail. We know that to be Christ. Okay. Um, so Ezekiel is a great prophecy of the new covenant. Christ fulfills it by the shedding of his blood. We know that again from the New Testament. So the New Testament authors are always reaching back into the old and bringing the reality forward as they should because of the unity of the scriptures. And uh, who fulfills um, the old covenant? God does. Remember, the Abrahamic covenant, uh, covenant uh, before the contract is signed, what does God do to Abraham? He puts him to sleep. So he's the sole signatory. We know from that that Abraham ultimately cannot fail, even though he has, he has major failures in his personal life, like passing off his wife as his sister, it's kind of a half lie, on and on, things like that. God has given him new life. He had faith and God reckoned to him righteousness. Okay, uh, clearly taught in the Old Testament, clearly taught in the New. Same thing with the New Covenant. Um, um, so the New Covenant is spoken of in Jeremiah, spoken of in Ezekiel. The great restoration uh, promises are spoken of uh, all over the Old Testament, but that's what Ezekiel is speaking to. The prophet Isaiah speaks to uh, restoration promises. Uh, the quotation from John 6.44 uh, no man can come to me except, except the Father draw him, comes from the book of Isaiah. Unity of the, unity of the Testaments. Fulfillment of what's pro prophesied in the old happens in the new by the new creator who is Christ. Okay? Uh, uh, the, uh, the Isaiah text is a time will come in which they will all know me. 
They shall all be taught of God. John, John quotes that text in John chapter 6. And they shall all be taught of God. How do we come to Christ? Because we have an efficacious teacher, God the Father. He teaches us about Christ. Um, if you have your New Testaments, turn with me, if you would, to John, uh, 1 John chapter 5. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about the new creation. Because the new creation, again, God's irresistible grace. Let's, I just want to nail this down in terms of the new birth. Um, so 1 John chapter 5, and I'm going to read verses 1 to 4. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe His commandments. Verse 3, For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Okay, so let's, let's go back to verse 1. Whoever believes... Uh, we pro reformed theologians and reformed church people are radical in affirming that we have to believe in Christ. We have to have faith in Christ. The question is, how can dead men believe? Well, they can't. They're spiritually dead. Ephesians 2.1 So look at what John is saying. Whoever believes that Jesus Christ is born of God. We're birthed of God. God is the source and the origin of the new birth. Uh, uh, the Greek tense speaks to completed action in past time with continuing results to the present. We were born of God. That was an event that happened. The continuing results to the present is we believe that Jesus is the Christ. Okay? Does that make sense? Completed action, past time, continuing results to the present. Notice, notice, uh, it's, it, it's not just believing. It's something even more essential than believing. It's the content of what we believe. That Jesus is the Christ or literally the Messiah. We don't just believe any old thing about Him. We believe exactly who He is. The Messiah. Okay? Alright, let's, let's go on. Uh, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. In other words, uh, God creates our love as well. Uh, we love uh, other Christian brethren. And by this we know that we, uh, that, that we love the children of God when we love and observe His commandments. Notice observe His commandments. We have to obey God. That's what the children of God do. They're obedient. How does that happen? For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. Uh, the natural man finds the commandments of God to be foolish and silly and utterly burdensome. To us they're not. Why is that? Because we've been born again. Because of the new birth, we love the commandments and we want to obey them. Uh, we don't obey them perfectly because we fail, but in the progress of our lives, uh, we love the commandments and they're not burdensome to us because, as Jose said, God has given us a new nature and changed our disposition 
formerly we hated God, we cared nothing about Him at all, and now uh, uh, we're no longer at enmity with Him because of the new birth, and we love God and we love His commandments. So let's, so, let's, so let's look at verse 4. Whoever is born of God, again, notice, born of God. We don't birth ourselves. Okay, We're born of God. Overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. How do we get faith? We're born of God. How do we overcome the world? We're born of God. What enables us to, to overcome the world system that's trying to destroy us? Faith. How do we get faith? We're born of God. So, um, to me, um, the majesty of our redemption uh, engages the new birth that the Arminian and and semi-Pelagian do not ever really deal with. They believe in the new birth, but they totally... Uh, do not deal with the effects of the new birth. Uh, what are the effects of the new birth? We love God. His commandments are not burdensome. We love the brethren. We believe. And we don't just believe anything. We believe that Christ is the Messiah. And we overcome the world. Okay? I mean, think of the world system that owns most people. Owns them lock, stock, and barrel. How do we overcome that? The new birth. So uh, they, they totally underestimate the power of the new birth that transforms our lives, that makes definitive, decisive change in our lives. Over time and in degree, I understand that. Uh, because of the metaphor of the new birth. An infant is born. It takes a while before he can eat solid food. It takes a while before he can walk. Uh, it takes a while before he can run. But over time, all that's the product of the fact he's been birthed. Our, the majesty of the new birth is, is, uh, is totally missed by the Arminian and the semi-Pelagian. Um, but it's just bad theology. So it's not only that, it's, it's bad Greek. It's bad Hebrew. They make no connection to the great uh, new Covenant promises in Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, uh, and God's transforming power. All of which have been prophesied uh, Old Testament, happen in the New, and they're going to continue to happen until the restoration is completed when Christ comes again and this perishable puts on the imperishable. How does that happen? Christ is the Creator. When when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, and we shall be changed, who's doing the changing? God is. So it's just, I mean, I, I don't want to be so bold and you know, certainly want to be humble, uh, but our, our theology is totally sound and biblical. Uh, and uh, uh, just the power of God. They're always, they are always, and, and and I say this in great humility, they're always overestimating what man can do and underestimating what God does. And to me, those are fatal. They're fatal to the Christian faith. 
Uh, one of the reasons I believe we are by and large uh, racing towards, uh, in a, well, I mean, we are an overtly pagan nation. Uh, we are racing towards darkness. Is because the church uh, in the 19th century rejected the Reformed faith. And you bring Arminianism into the church, over time and in degree, it's going to degrade to Unitarianism, which is going to degrade to simply raw paganism. We are where we are today because of bad theology. Um, great, uh, great, great presentations. I appreciate your reading. Uh, we have one left to go, and that's perseverance. Um, um, uh, I'm going to conclude with something that uh, Jose uh, certainly clearly taught in, in, in the reality of the new birth. Uh, we owe our faith to our election. So let's, let's close in a word of prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the grace of God, the majesty of thy power. Uh, we're thankful that we have been enabled by the new birth to believe and to hope and to obey and to persevere uh, and to live out our faith because the commandments are not burdensome to us, but because uh, we love the author of the commandments, uh, namely our great God. Uh, bless us in all of these things and to be confident of our faith and uh, our Lord, uh, use the truth to help us to be better witnesses uh, to a world that's lost. And these things we pray in Christ's name. Amen.